0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me yet again my co-host Paul Doroshenko
1: kyle nice to talk to you. How
0: are you doing? I'm okay. Am I might demo how's,
1: how's your week going?
0: I, my week has been awful. Like it's been so busy this week. I've had nothing but stress and like every deadline that needs to be met is being met late because of a whole host of factors. And I don't know. I've barely slept. I've barely eaten. I'm I'm kind of depressed about it. Yeah. That's how my week's yeah. going.
1: Well, the yeah. weather's going to turn around here for you. You're going to have a nice hot weekend. You can enjoy your yard.
0: Well, not really, because I'm going to be working all weekend, because none thought, of the deadlines... I you
1: working in your yard. Sorry? I thought you worked in your yard.
0: Well, no, I can't see my computer screen while I'm, while I'm in the yard.
1: Okay, well, we'll see, there's, well, there's a... a... For innovation, for somebody, maybe you need a uh, maybe you need a hood to wear, some sort of computer hood.
0: Well, I had an umbrella, but it broke, and now I can't put it up.
1: Hmm. Okay, well, we can schedule that for repair. (laughs) Yeah. If we can improve your life in some little bit here after your tough week,
0: it's just it's just going to be another tough week after this week. So,
1: well, the life of a uh, criminal defense lawyer of a driving lawyer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Every day, it's a new struggle. Something else.
0: Every day is a new struggle. Um, you,
1: you pick an unusual pace so for yourself. And I don't think most people would even consider that pace as something that was reasonable that they could do. At some point, you've got to maybe be pushing too hard and you need to pull back a little bit.
0: Well, you know? Paul. Then would you like to be the host of the driving law podcast?
1: <laughs> no, no, not really. Uh, you know, we could do a driving law podcast every 2 weeks. Might relieve you of a little bit of a burden. No. We could do it as a series where we don't have it every week where, you know, we do it every we do a series of of them, maybe 10 episodes and then take an episode break for 10 episodes. No.
0: Then how will we stay current on all the driving law issues?
1: Well, that's true. And there are always lots of issues.
0: And it's not as though we would have, you know, 10 hours to record 10 episodes at once either.
1: Well, we wouldn't do it that way. But yes, I hear you. That's true, too.
0: There are nothing but problems. So, speaking of problems, Paul. Yeah. Somebody in Kitsilano has some real problems.
1: Yeah, they're in South Vancouver, I think. Um, So, uh, I was driving home Sunday night, late from the office, coming up 4th. Coming up near Arbutus, and uh, it was a few blocks back, and I could see a lot of police lights and I thought it's not likely that that's a roadblock because they wouldn't make it so apparent, but it was surprising how many people ahead of me were turning off the road in a panic, um, but I continued on to see what was there, and the road was blocked. I took an alley to get through there, uh, and the road was blocked for four blocks either side of our arbutus and fourth and the next day we learned that it was a hit and run causing death, mm-hmm. So heavy duty, um, but uh, also one of those locations where I thought to myself, you know what, there's going to be so much video and so many uh, witnesses um, and uh, that in all likelihood they're going to be able to um, find a suspect awfully darn quickly. And the the police came out and said that um, the, the vehicle in question would be badly damaged. So it was only a day or so later that there was arrests made, and there was two arrests made. There was an arrest made of uh, some young person. It sounded like they were, I think they were in their 20s. And then what sounded like a family member, I'll bet a dad uh, or mom, um, I think they said a male, uh, in his 50s. Um, And so that was quite interesting because um, I think one could draw certain conclusions from what took place there.
0: What conclusions? Are you well
1: not beyond a reasonable doubt but um you know that um son is uh, driving a vehicle and comes home with a smashed up car uh or you know the smashed up car is abandoned and goes home to talk to dad uh and then uh with dad tries to concoct a story and i bet the dad's charged with obstruction or something along that line
0: yeah i mean that was the thought that i had i thought it was one of one of a couple things uh uh, possibly uh, there was a, an arrest um, under the Motor Vehicle Act for failure to identify the driver. Because if the owner was not the driver, a registered owner does have an obligation to identify the person that was driving the vehicle in the circumstances of an accident. So if the owner failed to comply with that obligation, in theory, that could trigger an arrest. Um, It's one of the sections of the Motor Vehicle Act that has a power of arrest related to it, or it could trigger an arrest for obstruction.
1: Yeah, that's entirely possible. And I think uh, uh, obstructing a police officer in the course of their duties by lying about where the car is or something like that could also be a a reason for the charge. Uh, there's lots of different things, but it, it all seems to relate to probably um, some act after the fact to try and stop the police from being able to investigate the son.
0: Now, if I I read in a news article that this person was a passenger at the time.
1: Oh well, that could be as well. That could be again. You could. You may be on it. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, there's a CBC story a, that says a because six-
1: that. Go ahead.
0: A CBC story says a 63-year-old relative of the driver was also taken into custody for acting as a potential accomplice after the fatal collision. So, you know, think about if they washed blood or hair or something off the car, if they did repairs, if they even concealed the car or took the car out somewhere to be to be burned or dumped. That's yep. all, you know, an accessory after the fact.
1: Yeah, I I didn't know that. That must have come out. It wasn't in the didn't come out of the original uh, um police statement that the VPD made. Um so yeah, those are for sure. There's yeah. an interesting thing that happens in these cases um and that people don't know and that is that they run home uh and they tell some family member, right? And they start making all sorts of admissions to family members. In this case, of course, maybe it's different if the passenger it was a passenger in the car. But um you know, so often all of these things are told to mom and mom or dad can very easily be compelled to be witnesses. And people don't realize that they just assume that their parents are, you know, that it's home free, right? They get home, they can tell their parents all about it, but their parents can do what they can to help them.
0: Yep. And the other thing is, you know, uh, as soon as you start, talking to your parents about this type of situation, uh, you don't get the right perspective on it. You know, a parent is often like, I, you know, I'm not a parent, but I know what my mom is like if I screw something up. It's always like, you know, take responsibility, own up, confess. Take
1: your, take your lumps. <laughs> take
0: your lumps. Parents are the worst people to be giving legal advice or advice in a situation where you're facing legal jeopardy.
1: I've often thought about that one, too. Um, you know, I was never charged with anything, uh, but had I, you know, drove impaired and been caught, I would have gone to my mom and she would tell me to take my lumps and go to court and and plead guilty um, just by being charged. And had I gone to my dad, he would have said, well, we got no money. We're broke, but let's see what we can do to find you a lawyer. And we, you know, call around and find a lawyer and we'd have some payment scheme and My dad's dead now, but he'd probably still be paying. Um, But the point is that my dad actually would be the one who's correct, because so often um, in impaired driving cases, uh, you know, the, the evidence doesn't make it out. Yep. But yeah, so the danger is talking to your family. But of course, sometimes you have to talk to dad. But you don't have to lay out any details. You can say, I've been charged and I need a lawyer.
0: There's a danger associated with talking to your family. There's a danger associated with talking to your friends. Less so to your spouse.
1: Well, the spouse can't be compelled, but the spouse can still give evidence.
0: They can choose. What happens?
1: If, what happens if you have a falling out? Yeah. You, know, you 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 spill it all to your spouse. Yeah, I, I drank a two six a Crown Royal and smashed up the car and i don't know they can prove it because i wasn't i wasn't in the driver's seat when they arrived
0: uh my
1: spouse can come along and testify (laughs) about he told me he drove the car and smashed it up
0: yep which is why there's only one person you should talk to after being involved in a hit and run yeah that's a lawyer
1: talk to god no talk to a lawyer your lawyer may be more effective to you than God. Um, yeah, talk to your lawyer. That's it. You know, There's cases in the past where people have a friend who's a cop and they think they should phone up their friend who's a cop. It's the worst thing because you put your friend who's a cop in a terrible position where they're, you know, forced to collect evidence against their friend.
0: And, you know, you may actually have a defense to a hit and run case, which leads us into our second topic today.
1: Okay, let's get into that.
0: So this is an Ontario Court of Appeal decision and thank you to Peter Sankoff. Um, I am a subscriber to the uh, Sankoff seminar series and the Sankoff um, entire library of material uh, which includes um, case alerts as well as a little newsletter called The Beacon. And The Beacon is Peter Sankoff's summary of important cases that have come out um, from appellate courts during the week. And uh, this, this case came to us um, this week in the Beacon. So uh, this is a decision from the Ontario Court of Appeal um, in a case called uh, Regina and Met. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Um, and it involves a woman who was involved in a hit and run. Uh, she was also charged with impaired driving causing bodily harm and dangerous driving causing bodily harm. And uh, she admits essentially that she drank too much alcohol to drive. Um, she went to a, a nightclub or a bar called the bear claw or the claw. The claw. <laughs> um, and she. That's how
1: it's was, referred to in the decision.
0: Yeah. But I you like went to the claw. It. Oh. claw. Um and yeah, she was uh, there. Uh, she was supposed to meet a friend. The friend never, um, never showed up. She drank four tall cans of beer. And um, then there was a man, uh, Chris, at the bar who was bothering her. And like men at bars with women who are alone in bars, as I've heard so many times from so many clients, Chris would not leave her alone.
1: Well, there's a different side of the story, right? You know, that was her side of the story. The other side of the story was that she was so drunk they were trying to keep her from driving. Hard to say uh, which one it is, but, you know, again, you got to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And then there's the potential issue of necessity. And we've seen this before. You and I have seen this before, where um, we've had circumstances where women had to flee a a scene, despite the fact they'd been drinking and knew they probably shouldn't be driving
0: yep yep so she uh she left and um uh she ends up getting involved in an accident
1: not far down the road where somebody's
0: Somebody's sorry what
1: just down an alley like it's it's not far at all
0: yeah and uh the police come ultimately investigate this this collision, determine that she was the one driving, they take her into custody, she provides breast samples, she's more than double the legal limit. and she goes to trial where she's convicted. Um, she is convicted of the uh, all three offenses um, and uh, argued at trial that her conduct was essentially excused. On the basis that it was necessary for her to drive to escape Chris, who came into her car and tried to grab her. Yeah. And the really interesting thing about this case is, again, why you only talk to your lawyer, because at trial, um, one of the things that came up during her evidence was the fact that she never told The police, anything about Chris coming into her car, grabbing her leg, that she was trying to escape, that she was, you know, being attacked by this man. And essentially the thrust of the Crown's cross-examination of her was that if she had actually gone through this, obviously she would have told the police. The first thing she would have done would have been to tell the police, hey, this happened to me, I needed to get away.
1: And, of course that goes up against our right to silence
0: yes uh,
1: and interestingly I was asked this question today by a, one of our student interns uh, the student intern said well yeah but isn't it isn't there sometimes when like it needs an explanation that you're supposed to speak up <laughs> and uh, you know, that may be in court and that may be in a hearing but it's certainly not to the police not in Canadian law
0: nope I love this line at paragraph 44 of the judgment where the Ontario court of appeal says the point is that the events of the evening could have happened exactly as the appellant recounted and she could have exercised her right to silence and chosen not to tell constable Thompson anything about those events. No adverse inference can be taken from exercising the right to silence.
1: And the interesting thing is the right to silence apparently existed in British law as well. And it has been written out of the law. Um, there is a expectation now that if you have a defense that you will put the defense forward. Um, at least that's my understanding. And um, it one wonders when it is something that is so deeply embedded in Canadian law and American law, the right to silence. How do you deal with somebody if you're a Canadian or an American in England and you get in trouble?
0: Mm hmm.
1: Um, you know, will you be punished because you were silent? Here, clearly, the trial judge uh took her right to silence as essentially uh to uh, as a manner to reject her necessity defense because she hadn't put it forward there at the at the incident date and only testified at about it at trial. Obviously, you and I look at that and say, Well, that's wrong. Yeah. Um, we have this right to silence. And, and again, no adverse inference can be taken from exercising the right to silence.
0: Yeah. And the court, you know, the court of appeal even has a heading in the judgment that says the reasons for the, for judgment crystallize the error. When um, they, the trial judge did indeed rely on it. Um, uh, saying this is quoted at paragraph 62. But yeah. uh, after PC Thompson testified for the second time, counsel uh, for the appellant asked to call evidence in reply to his this testimony to rebut, presumably, any suggestion of recent fabrication. And the term "recent fabrication" suggests that the silence was considered to be a different version of events.
1: Yes. <laughs> The use of the terminology recent fabrication to describe Crown's position with respect to the appellant's defense, because it was revealed through the appellant's testimony for the first time at trial, demonstrates the fundamental undermining of the right to silence. An accused has the right to remain silent, barring limiting exceptions, none of which are operative in this case. Any suggestion that the accused is fabricating because she only speaks at trial serves to undermine that right. Done.
0: Yep. The end.
1: The problem I find is that, um, you know, this was a circumstance where the judge basically said what they were thinking in the decision. Um, You know, I'm often of the mind that the judge is not saying what they're thinking in the decision, but yet they're relying on that in their brain.
0: Well, I mean, it's hard Uh, to, I think it's quite human to go, well, wait a minute. Like, but why wouldn't you say that if that was the case? Like I know if I'm arguing with a friend or a family member about something, and they haven't told me a fact that to me or to to them and to me seems important later i would say well why didn't you raise that at the time so it is you know it is like a common sense type of thinking yeah but the law it is, is. the law is uh, not but
1: sense. there's lots of reasons that you may not have wanted to say something you know maybe you've known this uh, chris guy who assaulted you for years and you don't didn't want to get him in trouble right then Maybe you had enough to drink that you didn't feel that it would be appropriate for you to try and lay everything out mm-hmm. uh, because you were worried that you would miss things. Uh, you know, maybe you knew that there's no way Chris is ever going to be charged, so why would you say something? I mean, you don't have to go into the reasons, right? Because it's a right to silence. But um, you know, just on a sort of a common sense perspective, um, there can be so many reasons that you would choose not to do it. I mean, why would you, why would you tell the police? Do you have any confidence in the police to tell them this? No. I mean, are they going to turn around and Chris, charge Chris with it? No.
0: Probably not. And I mean, I've had, I've had clients in in the context of of these stops, you know, this, this is not the first time we've heard this story about women who are intoxicated, leaving bars, fleeing creepy dudes.
1: Bars or homes or, you know, Wherever bad date, uh, trying to escape, and you know, can't come up with the best solution. A better solution, I suppose, would have been to lock herself in the car, roll up the windows, and phone 911.
0: But he was already in the car, grabbing her, and he had her phone.
1: Uh, I know the there's this other person reaching in the window, is what I'm saying. But yeah, there's multiple things that are going on. Um, yeah, yeah, she, she, it's it's a defense, clearly. Um, but uh, point is that she uh the 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 i mean it's actually very strange because the um the way the injuries play out, i guess, but the uh there's the you know there's no doubt that there should be no expectation for her to be telling her story there to the police at the roadside, yeah mm-hmm. uh, because that's the position in law anyway, we have exhausted that one, Kyla, it was an interesting one, but we have exhausted that one
0: yes, well, you found a case from uh, the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench?
1: Yeah. So we knew that these mandatory alcohol screening tests were going to start getting challenges at higher levels of court. We knew that it was at uh, uh, the... um, So we'll back up. Um, In Canada, for the longest time, if a police officer had a reasonable suspicion that you had alcohol in your body, they could make a demand that you provide a sample immediately into an approved screening device to uh, determine whether or not basically you had a prohibited level of alcohol in your body, which would allow them to arrest you, detain you, and take you back for samples into a approved instrument. Um, then uh, in December 2018, they made it so the police could just pull you over and make a demand, so long as the pullover was lawful, um, which is a bit of a joke, because you have really no way to challenge the lawfulness of the pullover 90% of the time. Uh, So they call it mandatory alcohol screening, and um, the police in various places have been reluctant to use it uh, for a number of reasons, mainly because you pull people over and some people don't understand that this exists, and so they refuse and they end up punished. Um, You Also, you pull people over and, and you make this demand, and most of the people you're testing are just like blowing zero. Uh, because you're not going through those simple steps of identifying whether or not there's uh, alcohol in the person's body. And so you're detaining people like lots of people. Uh, one officer told me that everyone that he did uh, one day was everybody blew zero. And he's like, why did I detain all these people? I, you know, This was sort of the instructions of the day. Um, but in any event, uh, the constitutional validity of this scheme has been in question from the start because your right to counsel is violated your right to be notified of the reason you're being detained is sort of sketchy um, and um, the only um, threshold that's set uh is you're lawfully pulled over and subject to a demand and so you've challenged this in the irp context and we wondered back at the start when you started that whether or not you would get the first superior court decision uh, i know there was a Court decisions from uh, Saskatchewan saying it was constitutionally valid, and a provincial court decision in Alberta. Well, now the provincial court decision in Alberta has been affirmed by the uh, Court of Queen's Bench. And I guess the thing for me is the threshold question. So, um, and here's why it's interesting for me. When we did the IRP scheme challenge with respect to the seven day window to file it in dispute, Uh, ultimately the court of appeal looked at it and we were dealing with a case where the individual could not file within the seven days because he was in jail. And the court of appeal looked at it and said, wow, yeah, that's unfair. Oh, well, government's allowed to make unfair laws. And as I was explaining to to a student today, um, nowhere in the charter of rights does it say that that, uh, you know, the police can't do something, police or government cannot do something that's unfair. It's only got these specific limits that allow an out every once in a while that really are in many respects meaningless, like being notified of your detention. Well, that just keeps you from maybe being de- terrified, but you're detained by police, which you view as a, a scary authority who, uses, who use violence to to keep you in line. And so being notified of the reason you're detained, so what? Oh, you get a right to counsel. Oh, that's great. I get to make a phone call to a sleepy lawyer at two in the morning. who um, really can't do anything for me at that point, except tell me that, you know, you got a blow and then you'll be released. Um, you know, all of these rights are really just feel so meaningless. Um, you know, the right to silence, I guess, is probably one of the ones that's meaningful, but it doesn't say it in the Charter of Rights. You have a right to silence. So in any event, um, you know, you do have a right to unreasonable search, to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. That's both search and seizure, as you'd like to point out. Um, and the question is, you know, is this a reasonable search and seizure? Well, the only reason is because it's written into the code. There's no suspicion even. And so does that make a threshold that doesn't exist was the way that the question was formed uh, in part of this decision. And this is discussed um, at paragraphs 102 and on, the threshold search for reasonable suspicion. And ultimately the court looked at it and said, you know, yeah, we've had this for a long time, this threshold where the police, you know, couldn't detain you unless there was something, a little bit of evidence to suggest that Maybe they should be taking further interest in you. But ultimately, the court says, but that's not really the issue here. Um, you know, they don't have to have a threshold. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to. There doesn't have to be a threshold for it, period. the um, reasonable suspicion is not a constitutionally protected minimum below which all searches are unreasonable, it says in paragraph 105. Mm-hmm. Um, reasonable suspicion is simply one of many standards for determining whether a search is reasonable, um, and really that gets me back to sort of the same thing that the uh, Court of Appeal in BC said in in our case on the on the delay issue, and that is too bad. Um, you know the law doesn't have to be fair, and Parliament can pass laws that aren't fair. Now I want to bring this around to the last thing. Um, you know they changed to the Criminal Code creating the um, prohibition to have a blood alcohol concentration uh, that is at or above 80 milligrams in the two hours after driving. You're looking at that and you're saying to yourself, you know what, you could be at 60 milligrams while driving. You could be at 40 milligrams while driving. And that should be the threat. You know, being at 80 milligrams an hour after when you've absorbed the alcohol should not be an offense.
0: No, and then you're
1: sitting there. Yeah, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I don't think that they would have any problem. They would probably get no pushback from criminal lawyers. They would get no pushback from the public if they just lowered the legal limit to something like 40.
1: Well, I think there would be some um, and good reasons for that. But my point is it's just an arbitrary cutoff in the end. Uh, we know that, you know, when you test people's breath um, there and you pulled their blood, they might blow 90 milligrams. And in either legal scheme, the one prior to 2018, and the one we have now, they would both become, you know, it would both be an offense, right? You might be able to rebut it. But in both cases, it would be an offense. If you blew 110, in both cases, it would be an offense. But the point here is that, you know, you know, and I know, that if you drew blood from those people at the same time, you might get something completely different. You might get 60 milligrams. Yep. um, You know, and also depends on where you pull the blood from. And so many other things. and But ultimately, you know, basically they've said that the reading from the breath uh, analysis from the approved instrument is what you are. And is that fair when you know that some people and maybe certain individuals are not going to have been over 80 milligrams at the time they were tested? Um, you know, ultimately, again, it's an issue of the government's entitled to write laws that are not fair because it doesn't say in the charter. It has to be fair. Um, So, you know, here we are with another version of the law, which you're looking at and you're saying, well, this is pretty unfair. You're detaining all of these people, uh, you know, for every 30 people that you do a mandatory test to, if you're just doing all mandatory tests that day to avoid being discriminatory, uh, you're detaining 30 people and not getting any of them, violating, you know, their charter rights, because it's still a charter violation. It's just a permissible one. Yeah. Um, you know, how is this good? How is it fair? It's not good. It's not fair. But can they do it? Uh-huh. It's looking that way. At least that's what the uh Court of Queen's Bench in Alberta had to say in this uh in this decision that uh you know, dealing with the mandatory testing here.
0: The, which is
1: uh Dylan Dylan Alexander Pratt.
0: Yeah, the thing that got me about this decision um, was the use to which the judge in the original hearing put the evidence of like the the um officers who can went out and did the same thing that they had them do in our uh in our challenge that we brought, which was go out and do time trials to see how long it might take to do a mandatory demand when somebody's pulled over.
1: Yeah, they broke the law, yeah. Yeah, they so, broke the law. You and I were talking about this. I don't know if we ever talked about it on the podcast, um, but, but they broke the law doing that. They used the legal, they used their authority under the criminal code to conduct uh, not an investigation of individuals, but to to generate an evidentiary record for the purpose of their of their challenge.
0: Well, not just that, but to like generate statistical evidence. and they weren't using the results of the tests for like a public safety purpose, as in investigating impaired driving. You know, their whole thing is we're only using this because we're going to protect the public. But actually, they're taking the results and they're using them like they're using them for a statistical purpose, which is not permitted. And it's not a statistical purpose for study. and And you can see this, the criminal code has a provision. It's, 320.39 i think. Um yeah. it says that the use of the results of a test is only permissible for the enforcement of a federal or provincial impaired driving laws. So you can't use like you can't go take the test and use the DNA you collect on the end of the the mouthpiece to go test against somebody's DNA sample in a murder or a sexual assault. It's required, that it's only collected for the purposes of, of conducting the criminal investigation. But then they're going and they're using the results of the sample contrary to the criminal code for the purposes of, of building a litigation record for a constitutional challenge. And all of these,
1: completely not authorized by the code well, so every the- one of their mandatory alcohol screening tests in that case um, was not to was not to conduct an impaired driving investigation which is the lawful authority to do it
0: and never mind the fact that like the you know they have the evidence right they have cases that come before the court you don't you know the challenge isn't happening in a factual vacuum. There were in, you know, in Mr. Pratt's case, there were the facts of Mr. Pratt. In our case, there were there were two different petitioners before the court and the facts in their cases were the facts that the court should have to deal with. You can't go say, well, yeah, the facts. We don't like the facts that we have here. We don't like the facts, Mr. Pratt's case. We don't like the facts in these BC cases. So we're gonna go out and generate different facts and then say, look over here, ignore the bad things that happened in these test cases. That's not gonna be the majority of cases. Look over here. We went out and tried to do it right so that we can show what it looks like when it's done properly. That's gonna be the majority of the cases. We can just assume. Yep. Yeah.
1: I I don't like it either. I don't like it either. And it's just proof that they're going to use it for purposes that are not, you know, they're willing to right off the top. The very first time, you know, you can assume that they've read the criminal code and know it. uh, But the criminal code prohibits it. And so the very first thing they did was violate it by going out there to generate, you know, (laughs) to
0: generate evidence
1: for themselves.
0: Why have a criminal code, Paul, if you're not going to violate it just to prove how great it is?
1: Yeah. Um, well, and it just shows you again that the police are above the law. You know, these officers who did this in this case, every one of them should be investigated for this because they violated the law. But will any of them be? No. No way. No. Not a one.
0: Not, absolutely not. If there's
1: any police officers listening to this, they should be conducting an investigation of these officers. Read your criminal code. You're not allowed to use the results of mandatory alcohol screening for this. You're not allowed to use this provision for this. Yeah.
0: Anyway. Uh, well, now that we're all good and upset, let me unupsetify you. Okay. Because it's time for the ridiculous driver of the week. The week, the, week, the, week, the week. The ridiculous driver of the week.
1: Boy, this guy's mugshot is pretty good.
0: We have <laughs> We have talked on this podcast before about Sarah Shelkey, superstar lawyer out of Colorado, and the not so superstar Loveland Police Department, also out of Colorado, who
1: wow.
0: seem to figure out how to comply with the charter uh, or the constitution,
1: charter.
0: the Constitution. Sorry,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> can't seem to figure out how to comply with the law and how to be good police officers. And I um, realized that this week's Ridiculous Driver of the Week is, in fact, do, has done more for the people of Colorado than the Loveland Police Department has.
1: Well, you responded to a complaint. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> he went out there, he responded to a complaint. So, Paul, why don't you tell us what happened?
1: Well, so this fella, Jeremiah James Taylor, um, he's had his problems in life and he's got some charges that are outstanding or he's on probation for menacing theft and DUI. Uh, But uh, yeah, just uh, recently the other day, he broke into the Park County Sheriff's Office substation where he managed to steal a squad car. In the wow. early morning hours. This was Monday. I think it was this week or it was last week. Um, so now he's got a police car. And yeah. Jeremiah James Taylor, 33 years old, is uh, driving around in this police car. What are you going to do in a police car, Kyla? Well, you do he's what he does. Friends. He responds to complaints that come across on the radio. So there's a domestic violence uh, incident that was called in, you know, calling all cars, calling all cars. We've we've got a spousal domestic case happening at 33 West Terrace Boulevard or something. And uh, that's what he does. He's in the stolen car and he drives to this domestic violence location to look for the reporting party. Apparently he was uh, intoxicated, as you might have expected, and the squad car (laughs) was damaged at this point. Uh, But he went looking, where's the old man that's going to shoot someone? Because that was the threat that must have come across the radio. So then the deputy who had been dispatched for the call confronted him. Apparently he was there. Um, And uh, the, uh, I guess, Mr. Uh, Taylor took off and driving high speed on a highway there. He was up to uh, 110 miles per hour. Woo, 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 siren going um and uh, ultimately uh, he committed some traffic violations one would expect um and uh, so he was of course arrested and now charged with aggravated thra- theft of a motor vehicle impersonating a peace officer although if you look <laughs> if you look at his mugshot you certainly won't uh, I don't think they're going to get very far with that one what reckless driving is- resisting arrest and reckless endangerment and he's being investigated for other things that took place so um He's being held on a $12,000 bond. Um, yeah, don't steal a police car, I guess. Is that is that is there a moral? Does, does there have to be morals to the ridiculous driver of the week, Kyla? Um,
0: I mean, no, but don't steal a police car is generally a good lesson to learn from anything.
1: Yeah. Uh, let me see. It was uh, June 20th is when he was booked in, so it just happened. Well, heck of a guy, Jeremiah Jeremiah James Taylor.
0: You know, Jeremiah, if you're listening from jail, uh, (laughs) you're probably not going to become a police officer that way. Maybe he wanted
1: to just put things right. Yeah. You know, maybe it was time to give back. Uh, You know, the police are working hard out there, you know, making us safe in our homes. I'm going to get one of these police cars and see if I can help out yeah there you go defense lawyer the defense lawyer (laughs) and comes up with the most ridiculous defense you could possibly imagine
0: (laughs) yeah perfect well that's our podcast if you need to get in touch with us you can find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com or give us a call at 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of thriving law